Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Vaccines are the answer, but you know, it's the premiers who are the problem because they're not distributing them properly. But then the premiers tell us, well, those who will talk to us, tell us that they can't get enough vaccines from Ottawa and... It's a tangled web we weave. And then yesterday we had the new regulations from the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, at Ford Nation, closing outdoor facilities. So email to Roy at RoyGreenshow.com from Tavares says, Cops can now balance city budgets with their $750 fines. In the next 30 days. See, we get cynical, don't we? We do. We become cynical of the process. But you have to know that police services in this province have said, no, we're not going to do this. We are not going to stop people. Ask them where they're going, where they've been, do whatever questionnaire we're supposed to, and then find them 750 bucks if our officer isn't satisfied. We're not playing ball. The Ontario Provincial Police is doing it. But then again, there's the rumor that the premier may be hitting his bicycle running. Well, I don't think he's seen a bicycle for a long time. But anyway, uh, he may hit, hit somebody's bicycle running later on today. And if he does, we'll carry it. Dr. Donald Gerson is Canadian. He owns a firm called Nuvax, P-N-U-V-A-X. He's an internationally respected vaccine specialist, production specialist. He's done it around the world with great success. He worked with a Nobel Prize winner for medicine and yet, Dr. Gerson's Nuvax facility in Montreal, which is literally uh, half a lob wedge away from the National Research Council semi-building, uh, Dr. Gerson's building, his facility, his ability to produce vaccines has been disregarded, even though his company contacted the federal government in the early days of last year and said, hey, we can get into producing vaccines, millions and millions of them for Canada. And they heard nothing back from the federal government. But we know from Mr. Trudeau and from his ministers that there's no facility in Canada that can produce the vaccines necessary for Canadians. We know because he's told us. And they're directing $170 million to the National Research Council, which is, again, I don't know, a few feet from Nuvax. Anyway, I've gone on too long. Dr. Gerson, how are you? Good to have you back. I'm fine. How are you? I'm well. Did I did I misspeak on anything? No, that you nailed it. Absolutely. So let's pick up the ball where I just dropped it. And this is what's really gotten my goat. While we're told that there is no facility that can produce vaccines and the numbers required for Canadians, even though you've been on the air telling us repeatedly, and you know what you're talking about, you have the international reputation and experience. We're told there's no facility that can do it. Yours can, as you've said. But they put $170 million toward the National Research Council. How far is that building from yours? Oh, it's uh, 100 meters, more or less. 100 meters. So, um, you know, what's that? So that's, that's you maybe, know, maybe a, it's a pitching wedge. 350 feet, whatever it is. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's an easy pitching wedge. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of minutes walk. <laughs> so how ready are you? When, If you had been responded to immediately, Dr. Gerson, 
when you made your uh, offer or your your approach to the federal government early during uh, the pandemic, the first wave, if they had come back to you and provided you with what you needed to start producing vaccines for Canadians, how quickly could you have done it? We would be making them now. We would be making them now. That's for sure. In big numbers? In big numbers. Absolutely. I mean, many, many millions we could be making right now i mean we first contacted them a year ago march and got no response finally they came back to us in june and said no to us in october so you know what kind of decision making process was going on i have no idea but you know it didn't help the country that's for sure so you could be making vaccines on a daily basis now for canadians that that require them or who require them but there's, but we keep hearing from Ottawa that no such facility exists in Canada. Maybe they can't see you because they're, never mind. <laughs> uh, I don't want to yeah. get silly here, but it, but it is a, it is a, well, is a, it is a, an infuriating, infuriating situation. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, look, a couple of really important points. I mean, we know that the vaccine committee is conflicted. One of the original members left because the other ones were conflicted. We know that. So, you know, the government, unfortunately, is not getting good advice. But the, you know, the critical thing from our perspective is that Canada needs to hit all the levers and push all the buttons at its disposal and use all of its resources, including us, to get this thing under control. This is really an unprecedented emergency, and it's getting worse and worse because of these variants, which were not predicted early on. But they're dominating the scene now. I mean, the economic losses to this economy in Canada and worldwide far, 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 I mean, by a thousandfold outweigh the investment required to solve this problem. I mean, what are we going to do next summer when we're talking about the same thing? And it's it's really not too late. They Just spend the money now, get over whatever their hang-ups are, use the resources we have, and we can make products that will save lives and save the economy in the long run. I mean, it's it's... It's crazy that we've been dillying all this long time and nothing's happened. On the other hand, you know, we've been approached by other countries and other international organizations to produce vaccine for them, and we're in the middle of those discussions. And, you know, I, I, I hope it will happen because, you know, today total immunizations equal somewhat less than 10% of the global population. And, you know, WHO estimates that maybe we'll get everybody immunized by 2024, something like this. But we still got 90% of the human population to immunize. And if we don't do that, this thing will keep popping up like whack-a-mole. And, you know, the populations that avoided it still aren't immunized. So if it comes back into them, they're going to get it again. Okay, so let me go go back to something you just said, Dr. Gerson. And everything you're saying is valid, important, and significant for people to hear and understand and know. Let me go back to something you said. Yep. International governments or their representatives are contacting you and Nuvax to produce vaccines for their people. Yes? Correct. Yes, absolutely. But but there's no facility in Canada that can do that. Did you not know that? (laughs) Well... You know, other people in other countries must have a different set of glasses than the government in Canada. <laughs> so, so now I just want everybody again in this country to hear this. Dr. Donald Gerson, who's an international expert in vaccine production and vaccines, he has the CV, he has the experience. 
other countries are approaching Nuvax and Dr. Gerson for his company, for Nuvax, to produce vaccines for their people in their countries. But we're told by our federal government, the infallible federal government, that no such facility that can produce millions and millions of vaccines exists in Canada. And too frequently, that has just been dutifully repeated. Dr. Gerson, would you, if they came to you today, if the federal government came to you today and said, we were wrong, you're right, we want to get Nuvax on this, we recognize the importance of this, would you be able at Nuvax to start producing vaccines faster than the NRC, even with their $170 million cash injection? Oh, definitely. I mean, look, we've got a fully equipped facility uh, more or less ready to go. There's always some, you know, retooling to adapt it to a particular new product and process. But that's a lot less time and a lot less money than let's dig a hole in the ground and build a new building uh, and get it. You know, to get Health Canada approval, you have to prove every single piece of equipment in that building works as planned. And, you know, uh, you know, a year ago, we were completely ready and today they're still doing construction. So they've got this, this what's called validation process to go through, and, and typically that takes a year plus um, to do. And so if they imagine they're going to be ready, you know, in a few months, I think they just don't know how to do it. So, you know, we can, we can do everything we have to do to, to get this going, and... Um, and, got, I mean, you know, they can build their building and do something, but let's do both and let's make vaccine here while they're getting started. They can do more later when they're ready, but why hesitate? There's no reason. You're a very diplomatic man, Dr. Gerson. You're a very kind man. I wouldn't be as kind as you are. The, uh, the fact is that you can do what needs to be done for Canadians, and you haven't been green-lighted. Right. Nobody's come to you and said, we will use your existing facilities and, ex- and use your knowledge to the benefit of Canadians. So that's where we stand. I received an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Dear Roy, I'm a pharmacist in Alberta. We get vaccines out as soon as we can, as soon as we get them. Provinces are not the problem. And that's from Arlen. So... Um, Dr. Gerson, is it your sense, and we'll do this in about 20 seconds, is it your sense that you'll be producing vaccines for, for other countries in the not-too-distant future? It's looking very promising, yes. I think that's probably what's going to happen. If this were television, you'd see my head shaking. <laughs> well, you know, we, we have to look at this at a global perspective. If we make vaccines and it's for somewhere else, it's it chips away at that 90% of the global population yeah. that needs to be immunized. But, of course, right. my primary preference would be do it in Canada for Canada. Yes, sir. But, you know, the government has to step up and, and agree with that and, and pay for it. Let's look at British Columbia. Dr. Michael Curry joins us, University of British Columbia professor in vaccination and infectious diseases, chief of emergency medicine at Delta Hospital. Dr. Curry, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. COVID numbers. Yes, thank you for having me, Roy. Yes, sir. COVID numbers continue to climb in British Columbia. What are you seeing on the ground at the ER and ICU levels? So I think we're seeing two big changes from this time last year. So last year when we were seeing COVID patients, it was primarily the elderly and people who were living in long-term care facilities. The face of the average COVID patients a lot younger this year. 
So between vaccination and the past exposures in long-term care, we're not seeing the elderly anymore. We're seeing younger patients with COVID. Most of them are not as sick as the patients we saw last year, but we're seeing greater numbers. So even though they're healthier and less likely to get sick, we're seeing a lot more a lot more people coming in and they're a lot younger. The second thing that we're seeing is last year, people were scared to go to the emergency department. Here in British Columbia, we were in very strict lockdown at this time a year ago, and people were scared that we're gonna get COVID going out or going to the emergency department. So we were actually quite slow for almost everything else. So uh, we felt a little bit like the Maytag repairman sitting around with actually very few patients. So when we did have a COVID patient, we had a lot of resources and ability to help them. This year, people aren't scared of COVID as much anymore. People have resumed more of their regular activities and people are not scared to come to the emergency department. So we're at our baseline level of busyness with you know, heart attacks, strokes, traumatic injuries, and the other things that bring people to the emergency department. And on top of that regular level of business, we have the COVID patients on top. We're managing okay right now in British Columbia. We still do have ICU capacity and room to put the sickest of the sick, but you have to be very careful. The exponential growth you can expect with a virus can really rapidly swamp you. We haven't reached that point yet, but we're getting closer to it, unfortunately. Uh, Layman's question here. Uh, You mentioned younger demos uh, appearing. At, at the ICU and the ER. So the younger ones at this point are not being vaccinated, at least not in large numbers. With, mm-hmm. with, with, with these still limited vaccine supplies in Canada and the younger Canadians not able to be vaccinated yet, is this a ticking time bomb which will allow COVID to mutate further and learn to attack the most resilient, the young, thereby placing older and less resilient to infection Canadians who are not vaccinated at greater risk? Well, I I wouldn't say it's a ticking time bomb. I'd say it's a slow motion explosion. And so we are seeing it hitting the younger people who are not immunized. So we're seeing a dramatic shift, like older people with COVID. I I have to think back quite some time to think of somebody, uh, somebody over the age of 70 that I've seen with COVID in the last couple of months. When I have seen them, it's usually been in the context of they're living in a multi-generational household. So they're often a grandparent, their child or their grandchild or maybe even their great-grandchild picked up the infection somewhere and brought it home to a large household with older people living there. So it is affecting the younger people. I don't think the virus would mutate to be more effective at attacking younger people, but because of their participation in work, their participation in school, perhaps a little bit more casual disregard to social distancing among younger people, we are seeing it affecting younger people uh, to a much greater extent than we were seeing a year ago. Dr. Curry, uh, one of your specialties is vaccination. Where does the, where do the vaccines fit in the big picture? I hope this doesn't sound like a silly question, but I'm, I'm, we see the variants development, and I, I imagine there are variants we're not even aware of yet. Are, are, var- are, are vaccines the long-term solution, and, and are we going to be able to pe- keep up with the the variants of the COVID vaccine or the COVID uh, uh, virus with our vaccine development? It's, it's a good question, and I think we probably will. We've had a pretty resounding success with our vaccine development 
so far. And it feels like we've been waiting a long time for these promised vaccines. They were our light at the end of the tunnel. And now we have these variants, which have, to some extent, less of a, less of a response to the vaccine-induced antibodies. But I think, I think the big thing was the speed with which we developed these new vaccines has underlined that <clears throat> we can respond pretty quickly to it. So it seems like a long wait. But in the grand scheme of things, going from an unknown virus to vaccines with over 90% effectiveness within a year, that's a stunning accomplishment. That's a stunning accomplishment. Within, I think, 48 hours of Chinese researchers releasing the sequencing of the COVID virus, at least the sequencing as it was at the time, within 48 hours, the preliminary Moderna vaccine had been developed. So the new technology and the mRNA vaccines and these adenovirus vaccines really give us a remarkable ability to adjust our vaccines in the future pretty quickly. So we may need to keep getting booster shots for COVID. I think that's altogether possible. But so far, these vaccines have been incredibly successful incredibly quickly. Yeah, the the CEO of Pfizer is saying a booster shot uh, next year. Is, is what they're expecting. How do you feel about uh, how do you feel about the sixteen week wait between vaccinations between jabs? That's uh, that's a good question. I think most likely, I think it's a fine approach from the data we have. The twelve at about day twelve after the first vaccine, the rate of infection of COVID in both of the mRNA vaccines. And similarly, in the in the adenovirus type vaccines, the Johnson and Johnson and the and the um, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Oxford Zeneca vaccine, both of those are highly effective just under two weeks after the first vaccination. The only pause I would give is that the four month pause has not been studied in studies. And definitely public health was resorting that they, they're pretty sure it would work for four months. But they were saying that when the vaccine had only been on the market two and a half months. So it's hard to draw firm conclusions about vaccines, uh, about how they'll act in four months when you've only been using them for two and a half months. So yeah. I think theoretically it should work fine. But I would be a lot more comfortable if we would have had a good study and solid evidence that was going to work as opposed to a belief that it's going to work. One more question for you, Dr. Curry. From a British Columbia perspective, we're a year plus into battling this coronavirus. Are we further ahead, given all the parameters that you've explained to us, are we further ahead than we were six months ago? Are you, as some doctors are, fairly confident that we'll be in a much better place as far as reducing the impact of COVID is concerned by this fall? Yes, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident between vaccination and to some extent herd immunity um but mainly vaccination i think we're going to be living a quite different fall of 2021 than what we were living in the fall of 2020. professor peter pitts is the former fda associate commissioner he's president and co-founder of the center for medicine in the public interest and he's the author of become strategic or die we've spoken with professor pitts in the past Professor Pitts, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Would you explain to us uh, this action by the FDA against the J&J vaccine? Why? You know, that rings alarm bells with people. 
Well, I wouldn't characterize it as being against anything. It really is for the public health. And what the FDA discovered were five women who had gotten the single Johnson Johnson uh, jab injection and developed very serious and rare blood clot called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this is concerning because even though blood clots are not that uncommon uh, generally, this one is especially rare. And what the women share is that within the last two weeks, they'd all gotten the Johnson Johnson vaccine. So, you know, as the FDA put it, out of, out of, an, out of an abundance of caution, they put a pause on the use of this vaccine in the U.S. So, you know, that's only about 5% of the whole U.S. vaccine supply. We're able to make it up with volume from Pfizer and Moderna, the other two vaccines that are approved in the U.S. But this is a very important vaccine in Johnson Johnson because it's a single dose. It can be stored at higher temperatures. So it's the perfect product to use, for example, for um, large-scale vaccinations of kids uh, before school. So, you know, this is the part we want to study very carefully and hopefully get back into use as quickly as possible. We just heard, uh, spoke with a Washington Post reporter a few minutes ago, and we heard the number 300 million extra doses of vaccine in the United States by the end of July. That sounds just uh, remarkable. It's amazing, uh, particularly in this country, to hear numbers like that. Uh, how does that happen? And what, what's going to happen with that, uh, with those vaccines? Any idea? Well, I think I don't think we're going to have an extra 300 million doses. I think we, we will have used 300 million doses. Now they're talking about and a surplus. They're, well they're talking about a 300 million surplus in the Washington Post. I, I, had, I hadn't heard that. I had not heard that. That's that's a, that's a pretty large number. I think right now what we're doing is keeping up with the requirement. Obviously, you know the, the need for the vaccine is different in different states right. here uh, down south. But right. at the end of the day, you know, the, the takeaway is that President Biden has uh, promised and is going to be able to deliver that every American that wants to get vaccinated, will get vaccinated. And as of April 19th, we're opening up vaccinations to every adult. And hopefully once the FDA reviews data uh, from Pfizer and Moderna, both will start being able to vaccinate kids ages 12 and up uh, before school will have to start again in the fall. Okay. Uh, Professor Pitts, how does the FDA monitor the performance of vaccines, particularly at this time, with vaccines that don't have years of efficacy reports behind them? Well, you know, every vaccine, every pharmaceutical product uh, that is on the market in the U.S. has been licensed by the FDA, uh, has given the FDA substantial amounts of data before that was done. What happens, whether it's a vaccine or a drug, or what, doesn't really matter how long it's been studied before approval. Post-approval, the FDA has to continue to receive what's called uh, safety reports of what happens in the real world. <laughs> and that, unfortunately, is not yet real-time reporting. So when the FDA found out about these five blood clots, it recognized that it wasn't the data as of that moment. These were serious. They can cause death. One woman, in fact, had died. So in order to allow the data to catch up to uh, our attempts to, to, to find it and report on and understand it, uh, they put a pause on its use. Okay. It's really amazing, though, isn't it, when we consider that we really became uh, globally aware, really aware of uh, the COVID virus in February, January, February of last year. And here we are, a relatively short period thereafter, with the vaccines and the supplies of hundreds of millions of them, and they're being administered, and they really are the best line of long-term defense against uh, against this this virus. It's amazing that what has been done, what science has been able to accomplish. It's been a spectacular victory. You know, the, the fact that we have in the U.S. three approved vaccines, as well as various therapies, therapeutics, drugs, and diagnostics, in such a brief period of time is really the untold story here. It's really amazing. And what it tells us is that when the whole healthcare ecosystem works together, government, private industry, academia, and uh, 
you know, experts from around the world, we can accomplish great things rather than kind of shooting pills at each other looking to score political points. I think kind of the lesson learned here is how do you take working together and successes in COVID-19 and apply it to other healthcare issues moving forward? Do you have any thoughts on Canada being uh, very slow in acquiring vaccines and the wait time between vaccinations in this country is uh, 16 weeks? You know, one of the great successes is the government in the U.S. underwrote a lot of the risk relative to the uh, development of vaccines, and they did that in two ways. The first way was they underwrote what's called manufacturing at risk, and that means when Pfizer and Moderna and J&J were undergoing their, their research program that had a product they felt was the final product they wanted to give to the FDA for review, they had already begun manufacturing it. Now, if the product had not passed muster and the FDA decided not to license it, all those doses had to been destroyed. Yeah. That's not what happened. We have three vaccines that got, a, that got uh, emergency use authorization in the U.S., so we had a huge supply very early on in the proposition. The second thing, and another big difference from what happened uh, in Canada, is that the U.S. government up front you know, promised these companies to purchase hundreds of millions of doses. So it was a pre-approved market, which, again, gave the companies the understanding they wouldn't be left with a product nobody wanted to use. It was approved by the FDA. So once it was approved by the FDA, the U.S. was you know, at the front of the queue relative to these hundreds of millions of doses that we're using right now. Let's talk about police. And one of the key issues, as the Derek Chauvin trial in Minnesota comes to Minneapolis, Minnesota, comes to an end... And while in a Minneapolis suburb, another police officer is charged with manslaughter in the shooting death of a stopped motorist, questions are again raised about police training and their readiness to effectively patrol streets of America. Professor Maria Haberfeld is a professor of police science in the Department of Law, Police Science and Criminal Justice Administration at John Jay College in New York State. She served in the Israeli National Police and one of her books, she's written many, one of her books is Use of Force Training in Law Enforcement. Professor, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So questions are being asked about training of U.S. police and whether the training is sufficient and whether officers are truly ready when they head out onto the streets, particularly in large urban areas. And you're commenting on this situation. What do you say? Absolutely not. I always said, and I've been saying it for over two decades now, American police training is extremely deficient in comparison to other democratic countries. I would say the worst out of other democratic countries. The officers are absolutely unprepared. Uh, They might want to be police officers, and majority of them are good people who do want to be police officers, but just they're not getting the skills that they need to police effectively. So what are they going out on the streets with, and how much training do they have? And when they go out on the street, do they have uh, essentially the support of veteran officers who will say, I'll take you under my wings, rookie? So there's no such thing as the American policing, right? We have 18,000 different police agencies. We are extremely decentralized. No other country comes even close to what we have. We have over 700 different police academies. Um, In each state, we have hundreds of police departments. Um, They are trained differently. The shortest training model that I've seen is about 10 weeks. Uh, The longest is about 31 weeks, but average police training is about 17 weeks. Uh, About between 70 to 100 hours are devoted to the use of force training, primarily firearms. And um, 
there is very little, if any, training in communication skills. So when they hit the street, so to speak, they are quick to resort to the use of force, to use of their weapons, because this is how they train. And this is, in their eyes, the proper solution to any problem that they're facing. So when we look at the situation internationally, if you were to, and you uh, you point to Finland and Norway as two yes, countries that's, that, that, that stand out yeah. for their comprehensive yeah. training of police, what do they do in Finland and Norway? So first of all, they have police universities. So you are looking at the profession rather than some sort of a trade. You have to have an academic degree before you become a police officer. It lasts over three years. They have an integration of practical, tactical, and academic skills. Uh, they learn at the university, then they go to the precinct, they, they understand or try to understand how policing is done in the field. They bring them back to the university to integrate the knowledge from the field with the academic knowledge. And what I am most impressed with is actually after they finish the, this uh, three years of academic instruction, uh, they, they have an interview and they ask, after everything that you've learned, after everything that you've seen, are you ready to be a police officer? And they're absolutely given the opportunity to say no. And there are no uh, financial repercussions or anything of that nature. So it's truly preparing the officers for what is out there and not um, pressuring the officers to graduate from the academy, even if they feel that they're not ready and start policing the streets. Um, one important thing in American policing is an average of a C or 70, if you want to quantify the numbers, is required to graduate from a police academy. Um, as an academic, as a professor, student, my students who get a C, I don't consider them good students. So, um, so you see the problems already here. Mm-hmm. What are, have you studied Canadian policing, uh, police training? Yes, I did. I actually... How do we do? book on... In Critical Issues in Police Training, which was my first book ever, I featured Canada because you are one of the best uh, police. You have one of, you also have uh, multiple police forces. You also decentralized, but nowhere near to what we have here. You do um, excellent. I mean, you're a model for me. You have four different models of training. Um, are you out of Quebec, your, pro- your program? Because... Um, uh, are you located in Quebec? No, no, we're not in Quebec. We're oh, we're oh, in okay. we're in five provinces. Quebec isn't one of them. Okay, all right. Because uh, the Quebec, you, you have four models. Quebec model is actually the most impressive one. You also have a, a police uh, university. The recruits are required to complete a three-year college program. Okay. So, um, but there are also other holistic approaches uh, um, that combine. Uh, street tactical training with academic training and delivered on the university campuses. So there's, again, um, also a very good in-service training that you have. You you truly have uh, one of the best police trainings in um, in the world. Well, that's excellent to know. Now, uh, back yeah. to the United States very quickly here as we wrap up our interview. The incidents of guns being drawn by American police seem very high. Uh, and maybe that has to do with the fact that they live in or operate in a country where there are three mil- 300 million firearms, so the police officer never knows whether or not he or she is going to be facing someone with a firearm. Anyway, I was approached years ago on a traffic stop by a police officer while I was visiting in the United States who had his hand on his gun as he approached my car. Never forgotten mm-hmm. that. That's unnerving. Yeah. So, so a, a couple of maybe... Um 
corrections to that. Uh, we have almost 900,000 police officers. If, if they were so quick to, to use the guns all the time, you would be hearing about incidents almost on a, on a minute-by-minute basis. Right. So they are quicker than any other um, police force that I'm familiar with, but they're not as quick as they, people might think. And again, uh, traffic stops are considered to be one of the more dangerous encounters that police officers um, face in terms of losing their lives in the line of duty. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, a- a- every year we have a number of police officers uh, killed during benign traffic stops. So they do approach each and every traffic stop with this frame of mind that anything can happen. And this is why you're seeing them putting their hand on the gun. Okay. Well, you know, police officers do a very, very difficult job, one of the most difficult jobs in society. When the rest of us are running out there, running in, same place. So they deserve uh, a great deal of credit and a great deal of support for the work that they do, but they're also open to to uh, objective criticism, and the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis is, uh, is of course, making international headline news. Professor Haberfeld, really quickly, just to, to wrap up, do you trust police? Oh, I do. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.